Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah. We're in the 13th chapter. We got down to verse 10 in the 13th chapter of Isaiah. And in this 13th chapter, we have the division I gave you was the burden of Babylon. It began the burden of Babylon. In the first verse, Isaiah calls all of these burdens against these nations and these judgments against these nations burdens. And... uh Verses 1 through 5, we had the judgment of Babylon, Jehovah's call to the judgment of Babylon, and then the day of Jehovah when Babylon falls, verses 6 through 16, and that's the section that we're in tonight, and then verse 17 through 22 shows us Babylon's overthrow, but we're in the middle of that first, that second part of this division of this book, or this chapter I should say, verses 6 through 16. We're talking about the uh, day of Jehovah and when Babylon falls, and we're talking about judgment upon that nation. We'll pick up with verse 11 and go on, but before I do that, let me remind you that uh, all of this 13th chapter and the 14th chapter, the biggest part of the 14th chapter, have to do with uh, prophecies uh, against Babylon. The next one you'll find in verse 25 is Assyria. Then you drop down to verse 29, and, and it's uh, Palestina, which is Philistia, actually. And then chapter 15, verse 1, is Moab. Chapter 17, verse 1, is Damascus. And 18.1 is called uh, the land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. And the 19th chapter, the burden of Egypt. And then you go on and on. I think it's the 20th chapter. Uh, you have a serious conquest. That's beginning with verse 1. And there's two more. The desert areas in chapter 21. And and then Tyre in, in chapter 23. So all down through to from chapter 13 that we just already are in and studied started to chapter 23, verse 18, you have God's judgment and prophecies of judgment against foreign nations. And meanwhile, his people are suffering uh, because of their sins. And he's permitting at this particular time that we're studying in the book of Isaiah, the 13th chapter, he's permitting Assyria as a rod to judge his own people. So, you know, God has all things under control. And he has the wicked nations and the evil nations in view as to what's going to happen to them. But he also has his people in view as to how they need to be chastened from time to time. Now, a little ray of hope comes to God's people beginning with verse 11. And you have 13.11. Now, we'll pick it up verse by verse. It says, And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause... The arrogancy of the proud to cease. Babylon's king was proud and the people were proud. And will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And by the way, this refers not only to their sin historically, as we have looked at it here in the, in the book of Isaiah. And there's much to be found in the book of Daniel and other uh, prophets, even the minor prophets, Amos and others. But... Not only do we see their arrogancy and their sin and their pride laid low here in the Old Testament when God does finally judge them, but we see it in the prophecy in the book of Revelation when that great Babylon of the future will be 
It's a prophecy of their fall and their downfall too in the future time. In verse 12 it says, And I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden golden wage of Ophir. You remember gold uh, came to Solomon from Arabia and India. And you remember he sent for the gold of Ophir? Well, nobody knows for sure exactly where this came from, but there are indications that he did send to Arabia and India for gold. And at least two places in Africa, Rhodesia and would you believe Somalia? Somalia fits best the place that Solomon sent for gold. Let me ask you this question. You know what's happened in Somalia in our time. Is gold the answer to a nation's problem? When Solomon, the richest king and kingdom of all time, of Israel, sent there and fetched gold for his treasuries? Gold's not the answer, is it? Because you know the starvation and the the political unrest and all the factions in in Somalia in just the recent years, last year or two, and even Rhodesia here we have mentioned in North Africa. And so, two places in Africa. And so we find that actually history tells us and proves that in due time, and look how many years it's been, that people that rest in their treasures and have the wealth of treasuries are not always the ones that are the safest and the happiest. And by the way, you want to bring that down and make an application personally, it's the same thing. I know of families that that have uh, very little, work for a living, just make it. I think I gave you this illustration one time. I was talking about a family when I pastored uh, Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in East Texas, and my song leader and I were visiting a certain home, and this family were uh, this is a poor family. This man had gotten him a job with Borden Dairies, and or Borden Milk Company. I don't know if it's the dairy itself, but he had a job, a steady job, and he said he paid his house rent, and he had some money for groceries, and they were the happiest people in the world because he had made enough money to stay out of debt that week or two or a month or whatever it was and, and begin to make a living and stay above board. Now, I wonder how many of us are happy for the real little blessings of, we call them small blessings of life, but the necessary blessings of life. Brother, if we're not, we should be. I'm thankful to God for uh, a house, a roof over my head, for food on the table, and for uh, the comforts of life, for clothing, and for the... Uh, ability to work and to pay my bills. And that should be a blessing to everyone. Paul said, listen, having therefore, brethren, food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Right? Sometimes we're never contented. We're never contented. But here, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man of the golden wage of Ophir. And we just mentioned uh, the fact that uh, nobody knows where that was, but on the other hand, Solomon sought gold, and he went to Arabia and India and at least these two places in Africa, Rhodesia and Somalia. And Somalia fits the best uh, picture of where he went. Verse 13, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. I wonder if he could not be referring to an earthquake here. He'll shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place. In verse 14, And it shall be 
as the chaste roe, and as a sheep that no man taketh up. They shall every man turn to his own people to flee every one into his own land. And that is Babylon shall be as a chaste roe. And they'll be like a sheep that no man taketh up. You know, sheep are defenseless creatures. And without a shepherd, they are helpless. And these people would be scattered and, and as one that no one would take up. Isn't it awful to see people round about you that are just shepherdless? Have you ever thought about it? Jesus said that he had mercy on the multitude. And I think it's Matthew chapter 9, the last verses. And he said, uh, had mercy upon the multitude because they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. First he fed that multitude and then he... Then he told the disciples he had mercy upon them also too, because they were, they were to him like sheep having no shepherd. And then he turns to the fact that there's a harvest, and he says, from shepherd business to harvest, and he says, pray that the Lord will send, send labors into his harvest. Verse uh, 15, Everyone that is found shall be thrust through, and everyone that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. There would be judgment. Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives ravished. And then in the third section of this chapter, we're talking about Babylon being overthrown. The final overthrow. This was the judgment and the things they had to face. But it says in verse 17, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. So he's telling about the Medes that will finally be the destruction. If you want to turn to Daniel chapter 5. Well, let's read verse 19 first. Let's read verse 18 and 19, then we'll turn to Daniel chapter 5. It says, verse 17, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. In verse 18, their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans, Chaldees, excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now look at Daniel chapter 5, verse 28. Daniel 5, verse 28. Remember... It says, Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed uh, Daniel. He interpreted the dream, put a chain of gold about his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 30, In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. So it was predicted by Isaiah, that this judgment would come and this fall, and that God would stir up, back in our text, verse 17, 13th chapter, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. And at the same time He was stirring up the Medes against Babylon, He was also smiting the pride of this Belshazzar. Remember? In that night He was slain. Remember, they had this big party. Turn back to it if you want to turn to Chapter uh, 5, we'll just read the first uh, six verses. It says, Belshazzar the king, in chapter 5 of Daniel, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. That tells me that drinking's no good. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden vessels gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. 
So they were desecrating the vessels of God that they had stolen, robbed out of the house of God in Jerusalem. Temple. Verse 3. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Look at how many different kinds and aspects of gods people have. What? Gods of gold, of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, of stone. Any god but God. And by the way, they're, they're multiplied, aren't they? There are many. It says in verse 5 and 6, I want to read this. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Here was a writing going across the wall and he just saw a part of a hand. Man, that's scary, isn't it? That's scary. Then the king's countenance was changed. Boy, he was having a high yield time. I mean, all of this big party he was throwing for all of his uh, celebrities. And man, they were just really making merry, so to speak, as the world calls it. It says his countenance was changed. I guess so. And his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote once against one against another. Brother, I tell you, that's getting scary, isn't it? And old Job says when he had a scary time, he said his hair stood on the ends. And I wonder if the king didn't have that same experience too. But the thing about it is, it just goes to show you what brought about. You see, God is able to judge not only a nation and a kingdom, but men that are involved as leaders and and, and uh, rulers and kings of nations and kingdoms. And he did this not only against Belshazzar, and you know, Daniel interpreted the dream, and we came to, we came to the end of it in the fifth chapter. Let me read uh, when Daniel interprets the dream in verse 24. Let's begin. Then was part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written, and he refers back to what the king saw. And this is the writing that was written, and Daniel's interpreting. Meaning, meaning, tekel you farson. And this is the interpretation of the thing. Meaning, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Boy, that's bad enough. Then he says, Tico, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Paris, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And we read the rest of it. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet, put a chain of gold about his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So Daniel was exalted. But what happened? In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. That's what we just read. So you can see that when God gets uh, fed up with a nation... Uh, he brings it to an end. He brings judgment upon it. All right, back in our text in Isaiah, chapter 13, if you will. Let's read again, verse 17. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. Verse 18. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces. Verse 19. In Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as God had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, He would eliminate Babylon. You see? He had eliminated Sodom and Gomorrah, and he personally brought down judgment upon those two places. And he brought 
judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Lot. And now he's going to destroy, he says, he predicts the destruction of Babylon. By the way, when he predicts the destruction of Babylon here, and it happens in the book of Daniel where we read of it, it's also a prophecy of a future Babylon that is to fall. And we have more about that in this chapter and the 14th chapter as we progress along. All of this, if we just wanted to study prophecy, we would not make these comments as to how the local application so much, but just study prophecy and refer to the Babylon of the future and deal with prophecy in general. But I don't like to do that. I like to give the, the, local, the historical fulfillment and then the, the kind of personal application of how it applies to us, as well as mention the fact there is coming a day of judgment for that Babylon of the, of the book of Revelation of the tribulation period. In chapter, let's see, 14 and verse uh, 8, it says, and there followed, in, in Revelation 14 verse 8, it says, there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Revelation 14, verse 8, and then Revelation 17, 18, uh, both have to do with it, of the future. But let's go back to the verse by verse. In verse 20, Isaiah 13, verse 20, and always hold your place where we're studying, it says, It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. It would be useless for human inhabitants. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, the wanderer, would not even want to stay there. I mean, when God does a job on destruction and judgment, He does it, doesn't He? I mean, even the tent dwellers didn't want to stop there. They'd find another place. Neither shall the Arabian pitch the tent there. Neither shall, look, neither shall shepherds make their fold there. Even the shepherds' flocks, it would be useless for them. They wouldn't make their folds there. But wild beasts, verse 21, of the desert shall lie there. Wild beasts of the desert. Wild beasts, the indication, you have a word in the marginal references, Z-I-I-M, but it, it indicates hairy ones, possibly a goat or some, of some sort. Wild goats, wild beasts of the desert shall lie there. And their houses shall be full of doleful creatures. You have all kinds of creatures. And owls shall dwell there. And satyrs shall dance there. You know that word satyr? S-A-T-Y-R, the Arabians believed were half man and half goat. And this was their imagination. There's no indication that the Bible says they were. But in their minds, these were like uh, crude-looking creatures or grotesque-looking creatures that they inhabited. By, that they were inhabited by some spirit is supported in the Septuagint of the Bible. Speaking of, of the word, using the word D-I-A-M-O-N-I-A equaling demons so that it indicates that it was referring to this kind of a, of a uh, evil spirit habitation around this place that would finally be deserted because of, of the sin and the judgment that God, the sin of the people and the judgment that God had to bring upon them. Pretty sad, isn't it? In verse 22, And the wild beasts of the island shall cry, the hyenas are the crying wild beasts in their desolate houses and dragons or jackals in their pleasant palaces. And her time is near to come and her days shall not be prolonged. God says destruction of Babylon was near. Her days would not be prolonged. 
If you look all these up, there's different definitions you might find of these various animals, and some uh, have one, maybe some variation from what I've said, and some basically uh, agree with that. But anyway, in chapter 14, it says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob. At the time he's judging Babylon, he will have mercy upon Jacob and will yet choose. In other words, he will set his choice again upon Israel. Now, remember, he had already chosen Israel. But he would set his choice again again upon them and set them in their own land. And the strangers shall be joined with them and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. The house of Jacob would be all the tribes of Israel, wouldn't wouldn't they? Uh, And he's going to yet choose or set his choice upon Israel again. And no one controls God's decisions. You can see here the sovereignty of God. At this time, after he had used the Assyrian as a rod to judge his people, and now he says, I'm going to stir up the Medes against Babylon. And now he says, further, I'm going to start delivering my people out of this situation, and I'm going to set my choice upon them again. I'm going to choose them again the second time. And he makes his decisions according to his sovereignty. He chooses to discipline his people, and he chooses to deliver his people. By the way, he does that for you and I. He chooses to discipline us when we are wrong, but he chooses also to deliver us when we're in trouble. I'm glad he does both. It would be bad if we were just turned over to uh, Satan's rule and control for uh, real torment and destruction. Remember, Job was turned over to the devil to a certain extent, but God says, don't touch his life. And Job suffered at the hands of Satan, but on the other hand, at the end, God delivered Job from all of his problems, didn't he, and troubles. And he gave him twice as much at the end as he had at the beginning. So, at the end of the situation, I like to know how things will end up. But usually, they end up right if you start out right. And the trouble in between the beginning and the end, we bring about on ourselves. See what I mean? You say, well, I started out right. I repented of my sins. I accepted the Lord. And, and you know, I'm trying to live the Christian life. And then all of a sudden, we start doing things that merit God's chastening hand. And then we say, all these things that happen in between, we don't, we're not so happy with. The Bible says, no chastening for seemeth to be joyous, does it? But grievous. But it says afterward. Hebrews chapter 12. But afterward it yieldeth, what? It yields blessed fruit. It yields uh, peace. It yields goodness. It yields a lot of things for us. So afterward is when that. If we're chastened thereby, and if we're corrected by it, says, now no chastening for the present seemed to be joyous but grievous, but afterward it yieldeth that peaceable fruit of repentance unto them that are exercised thereby. Now then, let's look at this in verse uh, 1 again. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob, how we need mercy, and will choose yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. This is not only the fact that they'd be delivered from Babylonian captivity, but there's also the fact that he would deliver Israel in a future tribulation period, if you want to look to it, in the time that we're talking about in the book of Revelation, and he would deliver them out of the hands of the Babylonian uh, rule during the tribulation period, and set them in their own land, and they shall not be plucked out anymore. Now, we're not talking about Israel now in their own land being set there 
that they shall not be plucked out. They have come back in unbelief. But when God establishes them there, then all these conflicts that exist now will be, that'll be put to an end. But right now, this is the in-between time, isn't it? For them. And so he's going to set them in their own land and they'll never be removed from it in the future. There's one thing that is right about what's going over in, on going on over in Jerusalem today, and that is the land does belong to Israel. That's one truth. Now all the all the trouble that they're causing between one another, God's not promoting that. They're doing that themselves, both sides. So that's why it's so hard to take sides for either one because they're bringing a lot of heartache to both uh, sides of this situation where they're supposed to be trying to work together. But on the other hand, there will be a day that it will all be settled and the Lord is the one that's able to settle it. So here he chooses to discipline his people. And in verse 2, And the people shall take them and bring them to their place. By the way, in verse 1, I want you to see something again. It says, And strangers shall be joined with them. Strangers shall be joined with them. That means that he can bring aliens and Gentiles to become part of his chosen people. We're going to be joined with them in, in the future restoration and, and uh, glory that they will enjoy in the millennium. You and I are going to enjoy a millennial piece of righteousness just like the, the Jews will go out of, out of the tribulation, be delivered out of it into the millennium. And when Christ sets up His kingdom, Revelation chapter 20, uh, they, will, they will be in peace and righteousness. And the resurrection, resurrection that takes place, all the resurrected that have already been with the Lord, coming back in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, will enter in with them to the joy and the blessings of that uh, promised peace that we have read about in the 11th chapter, where the wolf and the lamb shall lie down together. And all these things will happen. So these are blessings that are in the future. So he's going to bring aliens and the, even the Gentiles to become a part of his chosen people. And we will be joined with them. And the strangers, look at that, shall be joined with them and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. And the people shall take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the Lord for servants and handmaids. And they shall take them captives whose captives they were. And they shall rule over their oppressors. Now we're going to find that there's a historical fulfillment that we're talking about as well as a future. So let's remember that many times this passage of Scripture is saturated with what will happen to them historically and has already happened when they were finally uh, delivered from Babylonian captivity and the judgment came uh, in its final uh, state upon Babylon. In verse 3, it says, And it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear and from thy hard bondage wherein thou hast made uh, wherein thou wast made to serve. Actually, in keeping with what has been said many times, look carefully at verse 3. And it shall come to pass in the day, in that day is a consistent word. Remember in, that we studied in that day, in that day. Well, this is the same thing, in that day. But while we have it, and it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord will, in the day is that day, that the Lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear and from thy hard bondage. Three things, from sorrow and fear and hard bondage. 
wherein thou wast made to serve. Verse 4 begins to take up a proverb against the king of Babylon. These first three verses that we've studied shows that Israel will outlast even the conquerors of Babylon and would return to their land, their own land. They would outlast them. God would be with them because they had much endurance. And they would endure the judgment and the punishment that they had to serve and the, and the hard bondage wherein they would have to serve in captivity. But God gave them assurance that He would bring them out of it and they would outlast the conquerors of Babylon and would return to their land. But verse 4 takes up the proverb against Babylon and against the king of Babylon. That thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How hath the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased? The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hinder. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. So what's happening? It's a taunting song against the king and the system of Babylon, both historical and eschatological, turning to the future. As far as the future is concerned, it is a taunting against them. And it's a taunting against them historically. And we're going to find out as we read on down, let's read verse 8, the whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing, Yea, the fir trees rejoice at thee, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since thou art laid low, laid down, no fellow has come against us. In other words, the prophet is promising relief to Israel, to his people. You know, in the midst of all the troubles that come upon us, isn't it good that there's a word of relief, and there's a word of promise, and a word of hope? Sometimes, well, even Jesus, Jesus, when he was upon this earth, he says, in the world, he said to his disciples, in the world you shall have tri- tribulation. Well, that, if he just stopped there, that'd be bad, wouldn't it? But he says, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So every time he mentions the tribulations and the sorrows and the troubles we have, he always gives us a ray of hope out of that. Same thing he's doing here for Israel. The prophet is prom- promising relief to them. And the Babylonian king would die and enter into Sheol. Even Sheol is pictured as welcoming him. It says in verse 9, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. This king will die and enter into Sheol. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. And they, what, these spirits of the dead shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? See, there's no kings after in death. Death is the king that conquers, isn't it? And when they enter there, it's as if this tyrant goes into Sheol and is met by the spirits of departed kings who have been uh, his subjects. And there's not a good word for them. We could go on and tell you a lot about Sheol and I have information on but let's just take this verse by verse. I believe you'll get more out of it. So let's read verse 9 and 10 again. It says, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. The word hell here is Sheol or the grave. In other words, you're going to die. And you're going to the place of departed spirits. Hell here is not the hell of eternity where you're punished and torment and fire forever and ever because it indicates a different thing. But it's the spirits of the dead 
where they're going to be meet together. Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee. Stirreth up the dead. Look at that. The spirits of the dead. Even all the chief ones of the earth, it hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. And they, the spirits of the dead, shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? In other words, you ended up just like we did. Death was the old grim reaper that took you as well. And you're now here in the spirit. You're now here in the place where the spirits of the dead are all congregated, and you're become like unto us. It shows, by the way, that there's consciousness too for the wicked dead, as well as the. And of course, talking about the intermediate state of the dead, we have to get into the New Testament to find the hope that is promised by Christ and see more fully. You remember. The full light is not yet revealed here in Isaiah's prophecy. But as we come into the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and He speaks of, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in Me, though He were dead, yet shall He live. He gives a promise and hope for His children. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Paul said, if I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And He was resurrected from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. So all of this being future enlightenment, we can see more of what's going to happen to Christian dead. But you're talking about wicked people here in the Old Testament. And remember that there is a resurrection at the end of the 20th chapter of Revelation, wherein all the wicked dead stand before that great white throne judgment. Now, you and I will have already been with the Lord a thousand years when that happens, by the way. And I might put a thousand plus seven if you believe the rapture happens before the tribulation like I do. So we'll be with the Lord a thousand and seven years, won't we? Figure it out. So we're, we not only are pre-millennial, uh, but we're pre-tribulation believers in the coming of Christ. That He's coming before the tribulation for His own, and He's coming at the end of the tribulation with His own, and then the millennium takes place. Now, I know there's a lot of people turning from that today. And let me, you know, I've got information down there that I, I just hardly even want to read because uh, I know what it's going to state before they get to it because uh, it's talking about a, a rapture. Listen, not even before the millennium, but either during or after. Now, that really shakes me. Because I'd hate to go through the tribulation, have to take the mark of the beast, have to wait another period of years, maybe another millennium, before that the Lord would take me up to be with Him in heaven. And the Bible doesn't teach that. The order that I see, and I don't see how anyone can get around it, is that the Bible says that Christ is coming for His own, and He's coming with His own. He's first coming for His own in the air. And First Thessalonians chapter 4 says that, that uh, this I say unto you by the word of the Lord, that uh, it tells us that I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. But I would cer- certainly sorrow if I didn't have this hope, wouldn't you? Sorrow not as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's our faith, isn't it? Even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. The souls of those that are dead in Christ, God will bring with Him. And it says this, For the dead in Christ, for well, it says first, the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Okay? 
And then we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So it tells us we're going to ever be with him. And it tells us that the resurrection is going to take place and the, uh, the, the dead in Christ are going to rise. And then the rapture of all together are going to take, is going to take place. And John, I mean not John, but John says in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, that the Lord said to him, come up hither. And this is an indication that when he called John up there, he was calling us up there too, because the fourth chapter and the fifth chapter of Revelation speak of the redeemed around the throne of God. And it speaks of the Lamb that had been newly slain. And it speaks of the song of the redeemed. Now, if, if the rapture hasn't taken place, my question is, who are all these people it's talking about in Revelation chapter 5 that singing, Thou hast redeemed us to God out of every nation and kindred and people and tongue if we're not already there? Who are they? It must be you and I. I, I don't know of anyone else it could be. And so the rapture has to take place before the tribulation. And we could give you a list of, of things and things and things that will prove that fact. But... Uh, the main thing we want to see is that uh, we are there with the Lord singing a song of redemption in Revelation chapter 5. And it says, Out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue, that thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. By thy blood. And then in chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 1, you begin to see the tribulation take place over till the 19th chapter. And then in the 19th chapter, you find the marriage supper of the Lamb. You find the whole host of redeemed coming back with the Lord. He comes back on a white horse, a stallion. And it says, the armies which are in heaven follow him. So he comes with his own, and we're those armies of heaven that come back with the Lord. Back to this earth, when he judges the wicked and ungodly, and then he sets up his millennial kingdom and reign, rule and reign upon this earth in the book of Revelation chapter 20. And not only does he save Israel out of the tribulation, but he brings us into the tribulation. That's just what we was talking about a little bit ago. So, we're down to verse 10. Let's read verse 11 and we'll close. It says, Thy pomp is brought down to the grave. This... Wicked king and this Babylon, thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials, the worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. In other words, the state of death is seen here for this wicked and finally judgment that God will bring upon Babylon. Now then, verse 12 begins in a section that we want to talk about Lucifer. And when we talk about that, we're going to see the fall of this arrogant Babylonian king is in view, but also there is an allusion to a greater one than this. He may represent Satan, and uh, he is empowered by Satan, and he certainly represents Satan, but we're going to talk about Satan himself, personally. And you're going to find it also in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, and we'll read about the prince of Tyre as well. One of them, let me give you this in closing. One of them represents the worldly Babylon. The other one represents the spiritual side. And so we'll find that uh, there's one, the king of Tyre, in chapter uh, 28 of Ezekiel. And then we're going to find the king of Babylon here, too. Not only compared and revealing aspects of 
Lucifer, but we're going to also find that they represent two aspects of that Babylon of the future, that spiritual and worldly kingdom of the future. So anyway, we'll pick that up in verse 12 